This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Joanna, Caleb F., Amara, Sam M., and Benton. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We'll begin with a few serious questions. This week, our serious questions both have to do with the book of Zechariah. We finished our sermon series on Zechariah last week, but we still have a few loose ends to tie up. We have questions this week from Joanna and Caleb F., First, here's Joanna's question. She asks, when was the unique day? In Zechariah 14, in Zechariah's final oracle, his vision of the return of Jesus, he uses an interesting phrase to describe that moment. He calls it the unique day. And Joanna asks, when was the unique day? Well, first of all, this unique day hasn't happened yet, Joanna. This prophecy is directed towards something that's going to take place in the future. Of course, Jesus's first coming to earth was in the future when Zechariah wrote these words. But the return of Jesus that he's talking about in Zechariah 14 is actually the second coming of Jesus, which hasn't happened yet even in our own time. So it's still something that we're looking forward to. The unique day is the day when Jesus returns again, when he fulfills all of the promise of his kingdom, so he rules over creation fully, And he establishes justice. He restores creation to be what it was meant to be from the beginning. That's what happens on that day. And that's why it is singled out as a unique day. It's a day unlike any other. In the book of Genesis, we learn that God created the world over the course of six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested. Now, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, that seventh day, that day of rest, has a spiritual significance. And we're told that we, too, will enter into that rest one day, talking about the eternal life that is promised to us. And so, when you think about the unique day in Zechariah 14, think about a day unlike any other day that comes at the end of history, a day that lasts forever, as it were, because on that day, everything is made new and restored to what it ought to be. So the day that we're referring to is the one that all the events in Zechariah 14 take place during. It is the same day that John, at the end of the book of Revelation, is giving us a glimpse of symbolically. Our next question from Caleb F. is also about Zechariah. He asks, are Revelation and Zechariah closely related? And if they are, can you tell me how? Now, I've just made reference to the book of Revelation, so it should not be surprising that, yes, indeed, these two books are closely related. 
If you think about it, the book of Zechariah comes right at the end of the Old Testament. It's not the last book in the Old Testament, because Malachi, short book, comes right after that. But it's near the end, and Zechariah is kind of the, the last big prophet who kind of brings all of the Old Testament prophetic images and history together. So he stands at the end of that line, just in the same way that the book of Revelation stands at the end of the New Testament era. And Revelation draws on a lot of images from the Old Testament as well. In fact, the more you know your Old Testament prophets, the more easily you'll be able to interpret the book of Revelation accurately. Zechariah provides a lot of the imagery for the book of Revelation. So your familiarity with Zechariah now will really help you in understanding things from Revelation. I think another prophet that you would really want to study in order to have a good appreciation of Revelation would be Ezekiel, who's one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. But Zechariah has the advantage of having written a shorter book that's still extremely influential in the New Testament. So that's the relationship that the the images and the things that, that are prophesied in Zechariah, those same images are used in the book of Revelation to talk about the things that are still to come. And now it's time for the big question. This week, our big question comes from Amara, and it has to do with history. Amara asks, how do you know so much about church history? Well, Amara, I happen to love history. I love all kinds of history, not just church history, but as I'm sure you know, military history. I love just history of of politics and different nations. I love uh, really all kinds of history, literary history, you name it. I love history and I always have. I've always been a voracious reader of history books. I love watching historical movies or documentaries and just learning about history. In fact, when I was a young boy, I would sometimes pretend to be sick so that I could stay home from school and spend the day reading history books. My dad was a coach who also taught history, uh, high school history. And so he had all of these high school history textbooks at home. And I loved to sit and read through those and just learn everything that I could about history. So loving history is probably the, the best way to learn history because it's something that you just naturally gravitate towards. And when it comes to church history, there's a lot of history to learn. There's a lot of stuff to explore. But I want to ask this question, is it important to study history? I think it is. And and I think it's important not just because I happen to love history. I think there's another reason why all Christians, whether you love history or not, should want to learn some things about church history. Now, most people, when they talk about the importance of history, will say something like this, that learning history helps us avoid making the mistakes of the past. I think that's true. The more you understand and reflect and meditate on what's happened before, I think it helps you avoid mistakes, whether it's mistakes of like thinking wrongly or making the wrong choices, whatever it is. 
learning history and being familiar with history can help you make better decisions. But set that aside for a moment because I want to talk about the the value of history a little bit differently. Uh, And let's think about the relationship between history and knowledge for just a minute. I think knowing history helps you know everything a little bit better. Think about getting to know a person. If you meet a new person, you might have a conversation, you might spend an hour together, and you form an impression of what this person is like, whether or not they're the kind of person that that would be a good friend, whether or not you like the kinds of things that they like. There's a lot that you can learn just by spending an hour with someone. And, And when you do that, that person becomes real for you. You know that person. But you don't know that person the same way that you would if you had grown up with them. You don't know that person the same way that you would if you had spent not an hour together, but years together. If you'd had experiences together and you really knew what they were like when they were 10 years old, what they were like when they were 15 years old, what they were like when they were 30 years old. If you'd known them over the course of time, you would know them much better than you would by just basing your knowledge on a first impression. Now, that's true of people, but I'm going to suggest it's true of everything. That no matter what field of study you're interested in, whatever you're passionate about, knowing the history of it gives you a deeper knowledge than just understanding the abstract ideas. So when it comes to Christianity, you could study theology, systematic theology. You could master all of the doctrines of Scripture in the abstract, but you would not know them and understand them nearly as well as you would if you knew the history of those doctrines, how they developed over time, who were the theologians who championed them, who were the ones who argued against them. If you know that history, then you understand the theology better. That's true for the church as well. If you know the history of the church, then you understand why things are the way they are much better than if you're unfamiliar with what has happened in the past in the church. One other thing I want you to think about is this. Think about the way that God reveals himself to us. God reveals himself in history. Right? The Bible is a book of history, among other things. It records the history of the world and of God's revelation to his people. And that takes place over the course of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. So that people who encounter God in the book of Genesis, for example, do not know as much about him as people who have the whole of Scripture. Right? If we have both Old and New Testaments, we know more about God and what he has revealed than someone who only knows what God had revealed, let's say, by Genesis chapter 12. So, in history, God has made himself known, and if that's true, to me that suggests there's something important about history. There's something very essential about learning the history of things because God has chosen to use history as one of the tools 
through which he reveals himself. So Christians, of all people, should revere history and want to learn more about it. So the question is, how do you learn? Well, as I said, loving history is the best way to learn history, because when you love something, you pursue it, and it never feels like a hardship. But let me give you a a few practical tips. If you want to learn history, what you've got to do is keep a timeline in your mind of the whole history of the world. And I know that sounds complicated, but most people have, let's say, a very simple sense of the timeline of the world. You could start with the birth of Jesus that divides all human history so that we mark the years uh, B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. So that's kind of a middle point of your timeline. Everything that came before Christ came before that. Everything afterwards came afterwards. And then you start filling in important dates on that timeline. You think about what happened between, let's say, the birth of Jesus and your own birth. And you start understanding the different eras that took place there. For me, I always picture the way people would have looked in different time periods. So I can imagine what people looked like and what the world looked like in, let's say, the 1700s versus the 700s AD, right? And so the more you understand of that, the easier it is to kind of organize events in your mind because you can kind of picture what goes where. But throughout your life, you're learning more things about history and you're putting more events on that timeline. Now, it really helps to read good books. And when church history is concerned, there are a lot of great books about church history geared towards every level of readership. I'm just going to mention two books that I really like that I think are are pretty advanced, but I think you could definitely read these books and profit from them. The first one is a book by Roland Bainton, and it's called The Church of Our Fathers. And this is a pretty uh, accessible book about church history going all the way from the days of Jesus to more or less the modern world. This is a very uh, readable account. It doesn't go into huge detail about every period because it covers so much and it's only about 200 pages, but it gives you a good overall sense of the course of church history. Another book that I really love, it's a little more scholarly, but it's F.F. Bruce's book, The Spreading Flame, The Rise and Progress of Christianity from Its First Beginnings to the Conversion of the English. So this is not even close to covering all of church history. It's sort of covering what you might think of mainly as like the, the first thousand years or so of church history, but it is just really well written and really fascinating. And it fills in a lot of the blanks about the stuff we tend not to know about, which is ancient church history and let's say like early medieval church history as well. For a lot of us, our idea of church history is, you know, there's Jesus and the apostles, and then there's the medieval church and the Reformation, and we pick up from there. So so the spreading flame really helps fill in those gaps. So One last thing, I I could go on and on about history, obviously, but uh, I'll just say one last thing, which is this. Uh, We tend to suffer in the 21st century from something called presentism, which is the idea that the present day is the best, that we are at the height of human progress, that we're smarter than people have ever been, and we have kind of more understanding than people have ever had. 
The more you learn about history, though, the more you'll realize that is simply not true. We may be more technologically advanced than people in the past, but we are not more morally advanced. We're not necessarily more knowledgeable about everything that there is. And in some respects, we're a lot less knowledgeable. In some respects, we stopped asking questions that people in the past considered very important. So the more you study history, the more you will come to respect the people who have gone before you. Now for our final segment, let's ask a few fun questions. We have questions this week from Sam M. and from Benton. First, Sam asks, what is your favorite book? Well, Sam, that is a very difficult question, and by difficult, I mean literally impossible. It's kind of like if you ask your mother, who is your favorite child? On some days, uh, I could choose you know, one book that I love more than others. On other days, maybe I'm so frustrated that I don't have any favorite books, but, but usually I'm so in love with books that I can't single out just one book. So I'll tell you a few books in the past that have been favorite books for me. When I was in college, probably my favorite book was a book by Dostoevsky, a Russian novelist. It was called The Idiots. And it was about this guy, Prince Mishkin. And I just was obsessed with this book and loved it. Later on, as an adult, my favorite novel changed. It was Graham Greene's book, The Heart of the Matter. And for many years, that was kind of my favorite because it was the first book that I ever read that I felt like I really understood like why every choice had been made. And that, as a writer, that was really appealing to me. Uh, more recently, I, I really love the the collected short stories of Flannery O'Connor and her book of essays, Mystery and Manners. Those are favorites as well. But I also love all the classic books as well. Loved swashbuckling adventure books a lot, Three Musketeers, things like that. So a lot of favorites. And I think it's wonderful to not only love to read, but love to read a lot of different things and have a lot of different favorites over the course of your life. And now Benton asks, uh, who was your personal favorite general from the Civil War or Revolutionary War? And I'm tempted to answer the question the same way as the favorite book question. Like, how can you have just one favorite general when there are so many interesting generals to choose from? But, but actually, if, if I can only choose from the Revolutionary War or the Civil War, this is easier for me, and it's going to be General Grant from the U.S. Civil War. In fact, in my office, at my desk, above my desk, I actually have a picture of General Grant and his staff that I rescued from a bookstore in Georgia where it was not getting a lot of respect, and I thought General Grant deserved more because he was an incredible leader who really did bring the war decisively to a close. Later, he became president. He wasn't that great a president, but as a general, he did a great job. Now, I chose Civil War over Revolutionary War, but if I'd gone with Revolutionary War, the general I would have chosen was a guy they called Mad Anthony Wayne. Not because I know that much about him, but just because his name and because I had a friend in college whose name was Anthony and we called him Mad Anthony. So, sentimental reasons.
Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.